This morning, the title of our sermon is this, The Fruit of the Spirit is Joy. And we're, we're looking at this, this particular aspect of the fruit that the Spirit bears in our lives, joy. And let me say up front that much of the data that I'll present to you this morning is borrowed from Randy Alcorn's book, Happiness. I've used the book as a resource in preparing this sermon because he's done the hard work of collating and organizing much of what I knew I needed to present to you as we consider joy as the fruit of the Spirit. So while the concepts that I will present to you are biblical, and you should be Berean and double-check that, anyone who's read Alcorn's book will also notice that there's significant overlap with the substance, um, especially a couple of the chapters contained in that book and, and what I'm going to present to you today. And I don't want to pass off the work that I've done, or, or pardon me, the work that he's done in collating and organizing this as my own. So with that in mind, let's begin. And I want to start by saying that there's a lot of mm, uh, misconceptions surrounding joy in the Christian life, all right? When I was a little kid, there was a little cartoon called the Sunshine Brothers. And back in those days, you had VHS tapes, right? And so we would pop in this VHS and we'd watch the Sunshine Brothers over and over again. And basically the enemy of the Sunshine Brothers, I don't remember what they were called, but they were these guys shrouded in darkness. And they they wore dark clothes and dark hoods and they went around with little spray guns, which is spray kind of like darkness. And then the Sunshine Brothers had to throw, they had to bottle up sunshine at the Sunshine Factory and then, and then throw bottles of sunshine at these guys, right? But these, these bad guys had a theme song, all right? Bear with me here. It went a little something like this. We're happy when we're mad. We're always feeling sad. How are you? Terrible. That's good. We're happy when we're mad. All right, and listen. I think some Christians are on that team. <laughs> I think some Christians feel that to be a serious Christian, you got to go around always, always mourning for sin. Always full of righteous indignation at all of the wickedness and evil that goes around. And, and listen, some Christians are happy when they're mad. And they're always feeling sad. Alright? But... On the flip side, there is a misconception that if you're not smiling, you're a defective Christian. And if, if you're having a rough day, or a rough week, or a rough month, or you're in a rough season of life, you're a defective Christian. And there's no, there's no room for sorrow and lament in the Christian life, in other people's view, right? And so you have kind of these ditches on different sides of the road. Let me begin with a statement that might be somewhat controversial. God wants you to be happy. Or to use the language of our passage in Galatians 5, if we're couched in the terms of Galatians 5, We know that the desires of the flesh are set against the desires of the Holy Spirit. And the things that the Holy, the fruit that the Holy Spirit bears are therefore the outworkings of His desires for us. 
Right? So I could say it like this. The Holy Spirit desires for you to be joyful. The Holy Spirit desires for you to be happy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Now this is a controversial statement for a few reasons. Or at least for some, for some people it might be. One reason is that it seems at face value to be man-centered instead of God-centered. As if God is basically working for you, trying to please you and make you happy. And so God becomes, in a sense, subordinate to us to serve our happiness. Another reason that this statement might be controversial to some people is that it sounds like the prosperity gospel. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of moments. Another reason that it might be a little bit controversial or people might think it a little controversial to say that the Holy Spirit desires that you be happy is that many Christians think of happiness and joy as very different things. Now let's begin by correcting that last one and observing that biblically speaking, happiness and joy are very often synonyms, which means that the fruit of the Spirit is happiness. It's another way that we could say that. Quoting Alcorn, he says, The Bible often employs parallelisms, words with similar meanings used in close proximity to reinforce their meaning. We do the same. If someone says, I expected the party to be fun and exciting, but it turned out to be dull and boring. The words fun and exciting are synonyms in that context, as are dull and boring. They reinforce each other. There's a ton of overlap between the the words, if you were to say something like that. And at this point, Alcorn in his book goes on to list several biblical examples of this correspondence between happiness and joy. And he he gets right into the biblical languages and everything. I'm going to spare you the whole shebang. But here are just a couple of examples. And in reading these, we should know that our English standard version often translates as glad. The word that Alcorn argues means happiness. But the point is still well taken. And I think, again, we'd probably be splitting hairs to make a big distinction between gladness and, and happiness. So, so hear this. The righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. I believe this is Psalm 68, though. I'm seeing now I did not write it down. Give me one second here and let me see if I can verify that. Nope, it's not that. So, go back and dig up this sermon. Write down the exact words and Google it later and you're going to find out. Alright? The righteous, listen though, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exalt before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. See the parallelisms? Gladness and joy. Right? Not contrasted as if they're different things. But layered on one another as if they're the same thing. Then Psalm 92 verse 4. I do have the reference written down for this one. You, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. Or Alcorn says I could be properly translated happy. You have made me happy by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Again, what we see is not contrast as if it's, if it's a different thing, but overlapping these concepts like fun and exciting or dull and boring. 
you're really just overlapping, stating the same thing in different ways to drive home a point. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 39 says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. John Piper, familiar to most of us, says on this point that if you have nice little categories for joy is what Christians have and happiness is what the world has, you can scrap those when you go to the Bible. Because the language... That the Bible, because the Bible is indiscriminate in its uses of the language of happiness and joy. Now, could it really be? Some of you might be incredulously wondering in your hearts now that I've introduced this paradigm to you. Could it really be that happiness is a good thing? And that God actually wants me to be happy? Could it really be in the language of our passage that the Holy Spirit really desires to bear the fruit of happiness in my life? I mean, we know we're supposed to have something at least under all the layers when you dig it up and scrape off all the crud that somewhere down there there's supposed to be this thing that we call joy. We know that by now. But could it be that the Lord actually wants us To just be happy. It's a delightful thought. Let us continue by clearing away a few objections. First, when I say that God wants you to be happy, this this obviously does not mean happiness at all costs and by any means. As if God endorses us becoming happy in and by sin. The way a man might say, and you've probably heard something like this, Right? I left my wife for someone else. Why? Because God wants me to be happy. Surely you've heard something like that from someone. You need, you need to repent of this sin. Well, you know, I don't agree with you because I, I believe that God wants me to be happy. Right? In me telling you that God wants you to be happy, I'm not telling you that God wants you to be happy by any means. Or that, that God wants you to be happy at all costs. No, God is not indifferent to what makes us happy and how we pursue happiness. We must, pers- we, we must not pursue happiness in an unholy way. Which leads us to the second objection to this idea which we ought to clear away. Happiness and holiness are not ultimately at odds. You hear some people say, you know, God doesn't want you to be happy, but holy. Right? Again, these are the enemies of the Sunshine Brothers. Right? The, the, sort of, the sort of Christians that are happy when they're mad and always feeling sad love to say things like this. God doesn't care about your happiness. He only cares about your holiness. So... Wipe that smile off your face, brother. And get holy. Right? Listen. God wants you to be happy and holy. Augustine said approximately 1,600 years ago, When I seek thee, my God, I seek a happy life. If this was not legitimate... And what God wants is for us to be holy, but not happy. 
then Augustine should have prayed, when I seek thee, my God, I relinquish a happy life. And that would be the way that we ought to conceive of the Christian life, if indeed God does not want us to be happy. When I seek thee, O God, I relinquish a happy life. But is this the way we should think about it? That embracing Christ means relinquishing happiness? For those of you who are concerned about being God-centered and not man-centered, consider how does it exalt God? How does it exalt the glory of His Son and honor Jesus if we preach and we declare and we disciple in such a way that the paradigm that we are promoting and promulgating is that Jesus is the one who robs us of happiness. Of what value is the Christian religion if it makes us, if it is to make us, if the end of it is to make us unhappy for all of eternity? No, God does want us to be happy. And in seeking Him, like Augustine, we are seeking and we will indeed find in Jesus eternal happiness. And this brings us to our next objection. Saying that God wants you to be happy, me saying that God wants you to be happy, is not the same thing as promoting the prosperity gospel. Some people teach that coming to Jesus will lead to health, wealth, and prosperity. You come to Jesus and you can forget about that cancer diagnosis. Come to Jesus and you're going to have money in the bank. Come to Jesus and you're going to get a promotion at work. Come to Jesus and all your troubles will go away. And it might seem suspiciously close to that to say that coming to Jesus will lead to happiness. And if, if the message goes like this, what I'm about to say, then it really is the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be happy. So if you are one of His people, He will provide for you what will make you happy. Money, health, a promotion at work, etc., etc. If we preach it like that, that God wants you to be happy and so He's going to give you whatever will make you happy, that is the prosperity gospel. And damn that false gospel to hell. But if the message is like this, as C.S. Lewis puts it, then it is not the prosperity gospel. Quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. I know some of you have heard this one before. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Listen, God will make us happy. But He will make us happy by better means. With better objects of joy. Which means by implication, listen here very closely. That God may deal with you in ways that break your heart in the short term. But nevertheless, all the while, God still desires your happiness. 
in the long term. The Scripture says in Psalm 39 and verse 11 that when God disciplines a man for sin, He consumes like a moth what is dear to Him. And because God wants you to be happy, He may well absolutely shatter your life in the short term. Because you're looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And the sooner that you get off that dead-end street and get back on the main road so that you can make the correct turn at the correct juncture, the better. So God turns you around. He stops you dead in your tracks and consumes like a moth what is dear to you because you're looking for happiness in the wrong places. And that's no prosperity gospel. So coming to Jesus may actually result in God smashing your idols and putting you in difficult, heart-wrenching situations. And in in, in this sense, there is some truth to the statement that I poo-pooed earlier. God doesn't want you to be happy but holy. There is some sense in which God prioritizes your holiness and your ultimate happiness over your short-term comfort or short-term happiness, if I could put it that way. God is not just a genie in a bottle trying to make you happy by any means at all costs, but He is still trying to make you happy. And even in heartbreak, non-health, non-wealth, and non-prosperity, God is weaning you off lesser sources of happiness so that you can be truly and lastingly happy on the other side of it. When your quest for happiness is rightly reoriented. Again, God is not indifferent to what makes us happy. And so saying God wants you to be happy is not to be superficially understood to entail all that the false prosperity gospel offers. And when we think of happiness in relation to the pain and the heartbreak associated with God weaning us off what we are tempted to find ultimate happiness in, other than Him, and when we think about happiness in relation to just living life in a fallen world with all that it entails, we see another objection arising, which is this. Some people will say, we cannot be happy when life is so hard. Again, Piper is helpful to us here. The same man who told us just a moment ago that the Bible speaks indiscriminately of happiness and joy. It doesn't make much of a distinction. This same man also says, and I quote at length, Piper, I turn with dismay from church services that are treated like radio talk shows where everything sounds chipper, frisky, High-spirited chatter designed to make people feel light-hearted and playful and bouncy. I look at those church services and I say to myself, Don't you know that people are sitting there who are dying of cancer? Whose marriage is a living hell? Whose children have broken their hearts? Who are barely making it financially? Who have just lost their job? Who are lonely and frightened and misunderstood and depressed? And you are trying to create an atmosphere of bouncy, chipper, frisky, light-hearted, playful worship? 
Can you see that Piper is, is not naively expecting everyone to be lighthearted and bouncy and playful all the time? Though Piper's emphasis, if, if anyone's followed his ministry over the last several decades, though his emphasis throughout his ministry has been Christian joy, Piper is not advocating a naive chipperness, a naive bounciness, a naive lightheartedness, a naive playfulness. And neither does Randy Alcorn in his book, Happiness, and neither am I advocating such an understanding to you this morning. For, here's why, neither does the Bible. The Bible is not naive about sorrow and suffering and difficulty and pain. But that being said, I want to press the point on you this morning that the Holy Spirit desires for you, Christians in this room, the Holy Spirit desires for you to be happy. It would be okay if you were happy. In fact, it would be ideal if you were happy. And listen, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life for your happiness. And unhappiness, persistent unhappiness, chronic unhappiness, when the Spirit is working to bear happiness in you, is unspiritual. Let's explore this further. God and His gifts, God and His good gifts ought to make us happy. Notice that I said God and His good gifts ought to make us happy. And I, I didn't say God alone. Let me make an important nuance and clarification on this subject that's sometimes missed. First, let me emphasize the point that it ought to be true that you can be happy in God even if you only have God. As Habakkuk said, though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, Though the produce of the olive fail, and though the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, for I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I have no desire whatsoever to discourage or to undermine this sort of happiness in God. However, what are we to make of sunrises and sunsets? What are we to make of children and puppies and delicious food and the marriage bed and music and a cool breeze on a hot day and so forth? If you enjoy one of these things, have you fallen into idolatry? Since you keep hearing that you're supposed to be satisfied in God alone. Perhaps the enemies of the Sunshine Brothers might think so. Has God simply placed these things around us like modern day forbidden fruits? Tempting us to compromise. 
Or is it okay to kick back and play your favorite record? Is it alright to laugh and make jokes? Is it okay to surf your head out the window while you're driving and just feel a childlike glee? Is it okay if you're married to make love with your wife or your husband for more than just the function of procreation? Can you order whatever you'd really like at the restaurant and savor every bite and perhaps even get dessert? Listen, or are these things worldly? Does it mean that you're not satisfied in God alone? Does it mean that you're an idolater? This is a serious question. Consider that the scripture says in 1 Timothy 6, 17, that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And that appears in the context of a warning against setting our hope in riches. Right? But it, but it says, in the context of talking about riches or worldly enjoyments, that God gives us these things to enjoy. So no, don't set your hope in them as if they're ultimate things. But it's okay to enjoy them. In fact, God gives them to us to enjoy. And notice, notice the word that's packed into enjoy. Joy. Enjoy. So no, that doesn't include sinful things. Well, pastor, are you saying God gives us everything to enjoy? Even sin? No. Obviously not. You ought not to elevate God's gifts above the giver and make them ultimate. And yes, you should still be happy in God even if everything else were taken away. All the proper nuances and clarifications and caveats. Don't go misquoting me on this one. Alright? There are proper and improper ways to understand this concept. But it stands that God gives us Himself. And God gives us gifts other than Himself. For the very purpose that we would enjoy Him. And that we would enjoy His gifts. God has richly provided us with so many things in addition to Himself also to enjoy. Therefore, it is not worldly or idolatrous to be happy. You ought to feel like you have permission, Christian. Not from me, but from God to be happy. Not only... In God Himself, but also in whatever God has given you to enjoy. It is an absolutely delightful truth that one thing the Holy Spirit is up to in your life, among many other things, but one thing that the Holy Spirit is up to in your life is not only giving you permission, but working in you and on you in such a way to help you enjoy life. To help you be happy. To help you enjoy not only God, but whatever else God has given you to enjoy. Well, let us consider now with that in mind, with that permission from God granted, and that paradigm established, 
And understand that the Spirit is doing that, at work to that end in our lives. Let us consider how the flesh is going to be at work with respect to how the flesh is going to be at work against the Spirit. For we know that these are opposed to each other, Galatians 5 says. So how is the flesh going to be at work against the Spirit with respect to joy? And let's consider the way to walk by the Spirit, as our passage enjoins us to, in spite of the opposition of the flesh. And I would suggest that there are two particular ways that your remaining corruption, what Paul calls the flesh here in Galatians 5, is going to be the enemy of joy in your life. The first is that the flesh is going to tell you that God and His good gifts are not enough for you to be happy. And that the only thing that is really going to make you happy and bring you joy is sin. And wasn't this just the original lie back in the garden? Though God had given every tree but one to Adam and Eve, the lie told and the lie believed was that it wasn't enough and that God was keeping Adam and Eve back from joy. In modern times, the specifics will be different. Of course, it's not so much literal trees and what we eat, which ones we can and which ones we can't. But the lie told will still be basically that you need some sort of forbidden fruit to be happy. That the trees and the plants that God has provided for you are not abundant enough. That Eden is a bit of a wilderness, a little bit of a wasteland. But if you could just have that one thing that God said no to, then you'd be happy, then you'd be joyful. God is a bit stingy, not very benevolent. You know, so he's kind, of, he's kind of against your joy. He sort of, he wants, to, he wants to put limits on. Doesn't want you to have that much fun. And so he has set things up in such a way that you're not really going to be that happy with God and the good gifts that he's provided. And if you really want to be happy, if you really want to be joyful, you've got to do what God said not to do. Or you've got to skip out on doing some of the things that God said to do and do something else instead. This is the basic lie that was propagated in the garden. And though the specifics change, it's the same basic lie that's propagated today. Therefore, we must battle the discontentedness of the flesh with trust in God's goodness and with joy in His provision. We need to tell that snake, get out of my face. God has given me every tree, every plant, every bush, every fruit in this whole garden to eat. God is so benevolent, so good. God has provided everything that I need. Everything that is good for me, God offers me. God is is my good father. And good fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. If God has said no to something, it's not to keep me from joy. It's because He's wise, it's because He's benevolent, and it's because He loves me so much and is pursuing my happiness 
by His Spirit that He said, don't eat of this particular tree. That's one way that we battle for joy. We battle the discontentedness of the flesh, which, which tells us if you only have God and what God provides, you don't have enough. The second way that the flesh is going to be at work against the spirit with respect to joy is going to be doctrinal. I mean, the first is doctrinal in some sense too, but you can see a lot more clearly how it results in actual sinful actions. The second is more doctrinal in terms of how it just affects the way we think. And you could, you could refrain from actually doing outwardly bad stuff but imbibe the second error and be robbed of joy your whole life. It's mostly doctrinal. It's mostly about how we think. The second way that the flesh is going to be at work against the spirit with respect to joy is this. You will be pulled by the flesh to disbelieve the joyous news of the gospel. You will be pulled by the flesh to believe that Jesus has not come to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's a fairy tale. That the flesh is going to tell you that everything that is wrong with the world is never going to be undone. And the world is just going to spin around and around in futility the way it is. And nothing's ever going to be made right. That that trumpet's never going to sound. And the sky is never going to part and we're never going to see Him coming on the clouds of the air. And this, is, this world is just going to go around and around like this. And you're just going to die and your kids are going to have the same experience and your grandkids are going to have the same experience. The devastation of life in a fallen world that we all experience in various ways, that's the final word. And there's nothing heavier and more significant now, nor will there ever be. To be happy, then, is to be naive. Or oppositely stated, if you are smart, if you're an intelligent person, and if you're well-informed, then you couldn't possibly be happy. That's the second, that's the second way that the flesh is going to be at work on us. Doctrinally, trying to undermine, get us to disbelieve the gospel. The way forward, then, is to believe the truths of the gospel. That there is a perfectly good God in heaven who is what the old theologians used to call the summum bonum. The sum of all good. The, the, perf- the, the perfection of every perfection. The superlative of every good thing is God. And He existed eternally in contentment and happiness within Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In blessedness, which again, we can get into the biblical languages, but there's connotations of happiness, you know, in blessedness. The only blessed God, the happy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, from eternity past, the summum bonum, the superlative of every good thing, 
who has existed eternally in contentment and happiness within himself. There is that God. And he created us a moment ago. A second ago. On the spectrum of eternity. This universe that we live in has been on the scene for the blink of an eye. And he created us to enjoy fellowship with him and with one another. And although sin separated us from God, we decided to go our own way like sheep. We went astray. We believed that stupid snake in the garden. And we ate. We disbelieved God's goodness and God's benevolence. And we ate. And we were separated from God. And we found that sin didn't actually make us as truly happy as this eternally blessed God would have. What a surprise. And so we found ourselves in this situation where we're separated from God. But God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... And Jesus came, why? To seek and to save the stupid sheep that went astray. The lost. To bring us back by the Spirit into communion with Himself and with the Father. And not only will our souls enjoy this blessedness, but we'll just kiss our bodies in this physical world goodbye like the, the piece of a rocket that falls off once it gets into the atmosphere. But as Tolkien put it, everything sad is going to come on true. And Jesus shall make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Where is it? It's in my body. It's in your body. It's in Barbados. It's in all of creation. And all of creation is subjected to futility and is in bondage to decay and is groaning, waiting with hope because one day it's going to be undone. Jesus shall make His blessings flow far as the curse is found and so our souls are going to be okay so we can sing it as well with my soul. But I'm waiting on a hymn writer to write it, it is well with my body too. Or it shall be well at least with my body because that is just as equally true. The Lord will not wipe away every tear from our souls. Revelation says that He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. The death and disease that plague our bodies shall be undone by Jesus. The natural disasters that plague the world will be set right in the reordering and purification of the cosmos. So that nothing is out of tilt and out of whack and out of orbit and there's no friction underneath the, the surface that's going to cause earthquakes and blah, blah, blah and whatever, all these things that are happening right now. God somehow is going to make it all right. And we shall live soul and body with Jesus in new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells joyfully 
and happily forever. God is a weightier good than anything bad, even at present. You put the bad things on the scale, and then you put the eternally blessed God on the scale. And God is a weightier good than anything bad, even right now, at this moment. Which is why Habakkuk can say there will be no fruit on the vine. Though the barn's empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. But it gets better when we consider that we're not living our best life now as Christians. We're living our worst life now. And the trajectory that we're on is absolutely glorious. Everything sad is coming untrue. And the gospel will triumph in the end. And everything that Jesus came to do will be brought to consummation and fullness and fulfillment. And the Lord shall wipe away every tear from our eyes and the dwelling place of God shall be with man. So we can rejoice now and then we can, we, can, we can get happier into eternity. And if you are excited about something and you know it's coming up, you tend to get more and more excited as time goes by, right? Well, listen, even getting old can be like that then. Because we are nearer to our salvation than when we first believed, you know? So maybe you have that excitement if you're going to a a concert or something, you buy a ticket and you have that initial excitement and then it kind of wanes off. But then as the concert gets closer and closer, you get more and more excited again. It's almost like that with the Christian life. There's this excitement when you first come to know the Lord. Right? Sometimes it wanes off a little bit. But the Spirit is working on making the gospel more and more true, more and more real to us, helping us understand more and more just how good God is how benevolent He is, how trivial and fleeting and passing the things of the world are, and we're getting closer and closer to our eternal inheritance. So as we age, as we grow in Christ, as we mature, we can actually get happier and happier until that consummate day when either we go to be with the Lord or if we should still be alive when we hear that trumpet sound when Jesus comes back. The path of the righteous is like the noonday sun. Proverbs says, which gets brighter, or pardon me, is like the path of the dawn, which gets brighter and brighter to the noonday sun. So we must believe in the glory and the goodness of God and His gospel to maintain happiness now and to grow in happiness now in spite of our flesh's temptation to disbelieve. This is a key aspect of seeing the joy of the Spirit come to fruition in our lives. So our flesh is going to oppose the Spirit by making us think that God hasn't been benevolent enough and that we need something that He hasn't given us if we're really going to be happy. And we have to believe God's benevolence. That God is a a good God who is benevolent towards us and that everything that He has given us is sufficient for our happiness and that God is not actually an enemy but an advocate and an ally of our happiness. That's one way that the the Spirit will help us battle the flesh with respect to joy. The second way is 
the flesh is going to tend to be cynical and disbelieving about the gospel and the trajectory of our lives and the trajectory of our universe. And that will rob us of joy. But the Spirit will be impressing upon us the truth of the gospel and the truth of the trajectory of our lives and the truth of all creation moving towards redemption and renewal. And that will give us joy. So in conclusion, as I said earlier, the Scripture doesn't speak in naive or dismissive ways about sorrow over sin or sin's effects or just life in a fallen world, even if it's not the direct cause of your sin or anyone else's sin. The Scripture allows for lament and allows for sorrow and allows for grief. But a couple of phrases that the Scripture gives us. We sorrow... We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We're sorrowful, but always rejoicing. There's a little bit, of, little bit of that overlap in this time and place and space. But gradually, sorrow will give way entirely to rejoicing. The night will be over. And after darkness, light Sometimes it feels like happiness and joy are merely a temporary interruption in a constantly negative and overwhelming experience. But actually the opposite is more true if we were to think about it objectively. As I said, God created us just a moment ago with respect to the scope of eternity. Sin and the deleterious effects of sin are but fleeting and passing blips on the screen with respect to eternity, which stretches out into eternity past and ahead into eternity future. We are invited into God's eternal bliss in and through Christ Jesus. And that is a tremendously joy-producing happiness producing thought, 